having me here today. I, I feel bad that I've been in the area for 15 years at a sister church just 45 minutes away, and this is the first time that I've gotten to come and visit you. But when I came to Christ Community Baptist in 2007, my official job title was Pastor of Worship and Blank. And they made the blank nice and long. Uh, essentially, I was the pastor of worship and whatever else needed to be done. And over the last 15 years, that blank has grown, and the amount of time I spend overseeing the, the worship ministry has actually become a very small part of my role at the church. But when Ozan told me that I could choose my own topic this morning, I knew that I wanted to talk about worship. Because honestly, that's what we're here for. That's the point of everything that we do as a church. And yet, if you listen to the way that we talk about worship, we often seem confused. Like we don't exactly know what it is we're trying to accomplish. And so I hope that we can come to some clarity this morning. So if you'd stand with me, uh, we're going to pray again and commit this time to God, and then we're going to read from the scripture together. Heavenly Father, we are not here today to hear what I have to say. We are here today to hear from you. And so we invite your Holy Spirit to work in each one of our hearts and to speak through your word and through your spirit what you would want each one of us to hear and to come away with. We pray that you would glorify yourself by the way that you work in each one of our lives. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you stay standing, we're going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 24. So David went up as the Lord commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his men coming towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he pleases and whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aruna gives all these things to the king. Aruna also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer on behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. So you may be seated. When I was in college, I had a residence hall director named Rishi. Rishi was from India, and he didn't know anything about how we as Christians do church. And one evening, Rishi asked me if I could go out and do something with him, and I said, I'm sorry, I can't. I have worship team practice. And Rishi broke out laughing. That phrase, worship team practice, was just hilarious to him. He didn't know that our worship team was a group of musicians and that our practice was preparing the music for Sunday. So the image that came to his mind was something like our softball team with matching uniforms preparing for some sort of competition where we would stand and sit and kneel and pray and everybody lift your hands. And it led us into a good conversation about what worship is and why Christians do some of the things that we do. 
And for us today, it makes us stop and ask, if you had to explain to someone what the word worship means, how would you define it for them? And so today, we're going to do two things. First, we're going to do a word study. We're going to look at the different Hebrew and Greek words that Scripture uses to describe worship. And then, we're going to look at two examples that David gives us of what each of these words for worship looks like. And we'll see if we can draw some lessons and apply them to what we do every week. So there are two distinct Hebrew words and two corresponding Greek words that are often translated as worship. And the first Hebrew word is hishtachavah, which specifically means to bow down. And the Greek word for this is proskuneo, which is where we get our English word prostrate. So you don't have to remember hishtachavah and proskuneo, just remember to prostrate. These words mean to prostrate yourself before God. And we see this uh, in Revelation 22 where John falls down. He prostrates himself before the angel to worship him. And the angel says, don't do it. Worship God. So our first understanding of worship is to worship as bowing down. And this word can also be used to describe the more general act of worship. For example, in Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman... In John chapter 4, she says to him, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus replied that the time has now come when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. And he means that there's no longer one specific place that we have to go to worship, like the temple. We can do it anywhere. But worship in this sense still happens at a specific place and time. It's a time set apart from your daily routine to give complete attention to God. So bowing down in worship could describe the large part of what we might do on a Sunday morning when we set aside time for prayer, for singing, and for hearing from God's word. What we're doing here in this room at this moment could be described as worship, as bowing down before God. And that's an essential part of the Christian life because Worship is transformative. Worship changes us. Through this act of bowing down before God, God actually transforms us when we set that time aside to bow down before him. Psalm 22 is a great example of the potential that worship has to create that change in us. Because in Psalm 22, David isn't interested in defining worship. He isn't trying to describe it for us or give us instructions for what to do. He's just doing it. He's engaging God with every ounce of his being, and he records it for us so that 3,000 years later, we can participate with him in his worship. And as we do, we're going to see an amazing change that takes place in David's heart. So David starts his time of worship in Psalm 22 my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning? Have you ever felt like that? Because there are times that we come into church on Sunday morning and we are excited to be together, we're ready to celebrate, we're overflowing with gratitude. But there are times when we come to worship on Sunday and we feel drained. 
There are times when we have unanswered prayers and we feel like God's not listening. And unfortunately, at times like that, our first reaction is to hide that and pretend like everything's okay. But David doesn't do that. He brings those feelings and he lays them before God. And so I want to take a moment just to feel the weight of those emotions. Maybe you need to reach back to a time when you felt like God was distant, or maybe you're already feeling that way this morning. But I invite you to close your eyes for a moment and just feel the weight of that. My God, why have you forsaken me? Can you feel it? The first thing that I believe God is telling us this morning is that we can come to worship honestly, just as we are, because Jesus is ready to receive that. In fact, as Jesus hung on the cross, he spoke these exact words. In Aramaic, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he understands our pain, and he can handle our honest expressions as we're going through that. David brings that as he worships, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. So he reminds himself of what he knows to be true about God. God, I am not feeling it today. But I know that this is what the Bible teaches me about you. I know how you have proven yourself trustworthy in the past. And this act of remembering is important because it reminds us of who God is. Moses warned the Israelites about this in Deuteronomy 4.9. He said, be careful and watch yourselves so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Remember who God is. And this is the second lesson that we can learn from David's worship. We come as we are and we are reminded of who God is. And as we do this, our memory of who God is begins to transform who we are. It's interesting to notice that each of the things David calls to memory in verses 3 to 5 correspond to a doubt that he had in verses 1 and 2. He asked, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does God forsake us? And as he reflects, he realizes, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel, so God has not forsaken them. He asks, why are you so far from saving me? Does God save us? To which he reminds himself, in you our fathers put their trust, they trusted, and you delivered them. And he said in verse 2, I cry out, but you do not answer. Does God listen? And he responds in verse 5, they cried out and were saved. They trusted and were not disappointed. And so it seems as though God has an answer for every one of his questions, but he still doubts. God, I know you're sovereign. I know you've done great things in the past. But what about me? 
God, do you really care about me? And these next words are really hard to hear, but this is how David is feeling about himself. He says, but I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by men. I'm despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Before he doubted God, now he's doubting himself. The problem here is an identity crisis because David is allowing his perception of who he is to be shaped by what people are telling him. They insult me. They mock me. And he begins to believe it. But all those voices are telling us lies. Because they tell us that if you're not successful, your life doesn't count. If you don't have money, your life doesn't count. If you don't have the perfect family, your life doesn't count. And so we say, I'm a worm and not a man. Because my life doesn't measure up. But God says, no, that is not who you are. Your identity is found in me. And to remind himself of this, David begins as he worships to recount God's work in his own life. Yet, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near and there's no one to help. God, you have given me life. You have been my God. There's a relationship there. You made me trust. And we could go on to say, God, you laid down your life so that your righteousness could be imparted to me and I could be called your child. We are who God declares us to be. Just like David, we struggle to remember our identity. And the minute we walk out those doors, we hear those voices again. And that's why we need to come back again and again to this act of bowing down in worship. We need to be reminded of who God is and who we really are over and against what the world might be telling us. And so there's the third lesson. We come to worship just as we are with all of our doubts, all of our struggles, we remember who God is and what he has done throughout history, and we are reminded of who we are and what God is doing in us at this very moment. And as we go back to the psalm, we see that David's starting to get it. Instead of focusing on his problems, he's beginning to recall the things that God has done for him. But as he looks again at the circumstances of his life, he falls back into one last avalanche of despair. Have you ever been there where you feel like you're about to have a breakthrough? You start to have hope, but then you take your eyes away. It's like Peter stepping out of the boat, and you see the waves, and everything comes crashing down again. Many bulls surround me. Roaring lions open their mouths against me. I am poured out like water. My heart is turned to wax. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Dogs have surrounded me. Evil men have encircled me. One thing after another. What's happening here? Are there really bulls and lions and dogs and bandits all surrounding David? 
Well, no, but David is using metaphorical language to describe all of the things that are piling up in his life. And he's using the imagery that was available to him and inviting us to place our lives and see our struggles in the story. So think for a moment about what those images mean for you. What are the lions and the bulls in your life? What are the things that are surrounding you and choking the life out of you? What are the things that cause you to forget your identity in Christ? When you read the Psalms, you're invited to identify with the author and to lift those concerns up to God. And so as David is feeling overwhelmed, he lifts up one last desperate prayer. He says, but you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And you know what those images mean to you. So take a moment again and offer those things up to God. Oh God, be not far off. Come quickly to rescue us. And as David offers that prayer, something changes. Slowly the tide of the battle turns in his heart. He experiences a sense of release and he lets go. And the mood of his worship begins to change. And listen to the new sense of conviction in verse 22. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. Let you who fear the Lord praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fill you, fear you, I will fulfill my vows. And so now there's a sense of commitment. I will declare your name. I will praise you. I will fulfill my vows. And there's a sense of encouragement. He has not despised. He is not hidden. He has listened. And there's even an invitation for others to join with him. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Because now David is caught up in worship. And his attention has turned from God's actions in the past to God's action in the present. And finally he arrives at God's promises for the future. In verse 26 he says, The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. 
They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. Praise God, he has done it. And let that emotion sink in. And look at the transformation that has taken place from why have you forsaken me to praise God, he has done it. In one time of worship. What changed? Well, nothing changed. But at the same time, everything changed. Because the circumstances surrounding David are still there. But his perspective has changed completely. Look also at the change of what David's concerned about. At the beginning of the psalm, everything he wrote was about himself. And that's okay. We need to bring that. But in the last six verses, he doesn't even mention himself. He's become captivated by what God is doing in the world. And there's the fourth lesson. We come broken, hurting, lost, having forgotten who God is and who we are. We recount God's mighty deeds in history and we're reminded of who he is. We remember God's present work in our lives and we remember who we are. And finally, we are reminded of God's promises and our hearts are drawn into alignment with the heart of God. And all of that as we bow down and worship. I know it feels like we could stop here and, and that would be enough. But all of that is only half of the story. Because that's just the first word for worship. That's worship as bowing down. But you remember that I said that there would be two words for worship in the Bible. The other dominant Hebrew word for worship is avad, which literally means to serve. It's the same root as the Hebrew word for servant or slave. And so one who worships God in this sense is one who serves God. The Greek equivalent is letrewo, which also means service rendered to God. And it was used to describe the work of the priests in the temple. It's where we get our English word liturgy. But in the New Testament, it takes on the broader meaning of all Christian action performed in service to God. So Paul in Romans 1 could describe his missionary service as worship. Everything he did as a missionary to the Gentiles was an act of worship. And in Romans 12, he admonishes us to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And he says that this is your spiritual act of worship. Your act of letrewo. To offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And so worship in this sense encompasses every part of our walk with God. There's no part of our life that can't be offered to God as an act of worship. And so when you hear somebody talking about living a lifestyle of worship, this is the type of worship they're talking about. And this is what Paul is talking about in Colossians when he says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so we have worship as bowing down, and we have worship as being a servant. But how is it that these two clearly distinct words with very different meanings, merge into one English word. 
Well, the answer for that lies in the origin of our English word for worship. Because our modern English word for worship comes from the old English word, wearth sippy. And wearth is where we get the word worth. Sippy is where we get the word ascribe. So wearth sippy means to ascribe worth to God. And if you think about it, this is the common factor between the two biblical definitions. We ascribe worth to God when we bow down in times of focused adoration, and we ascribe worth to God when we lead lives of sacrificial servanthood. Does that make sense? And so now that we understand how the one English word encompasses these two biblical words, we can finally offer a single definition. We can say that worship is declaring God's value through times of bowing down and through a lifestyle of service. That's what it means to worship our God. We saw what it looked like for David to bow down before God in Psalm 22. So let's take a look at how David ascribed worth to God through his actions in 2 Samuel 24. This is the passage that we read at the beginning today. Now David is a guy that we can relate to because David messed up. Has anyone here ever messed up? David messed up a lot. And I'm not just talking about Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel 24, David messes up by taking a census of the fighting men in Israel. What's wrong with that? Well, two things. First of all, to count something was a sign of ownership. In Exodus 30, God commanded that any time Israel took a census, each person was, that was counted had to pay a ransom for himself to acknowledge God's ownership of him. God even said what would happen if they didn't do that. In Exodus 30, it says, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord a ransom for his life at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. So if you don't follow God's instructions and recognize his ownership, there's going to be a plague. David didn't do that. Secondly, for a king to count his fighting men was to place his trust in the strength of his army, rather than trusting God's ability to protect them. And David's advisors knew that, and they said, No, David, don't do it. Don't count the men. But he did it anyways. And once he had done it, he knew what he had done. And in verse 10, it says, David was conscious stricken after he counted the fighting man. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. So God sends the prophet Gad to David, and he makes David choose between three consequences. He have three years of famine, three months of being defeated by his enemies, or three days of plague. Of course, David wants to get it over quickly, so he chooses the three days of plague, and 70,000 people die. David really messed up. Finally, after three days of the plague, God relents, and the place where the angel who was executing the plague stopped was at the threshing floor of a man named Aruna. 
And by the way, the location of Aruna's threshing floor would later become the site of the temple in Jerusalem. But we pick up in verse 18. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king and his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has the Lord, the king, come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people might be stopped. And this next part is what we're going to talk about. Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and here are the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna, gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, may the lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, no. I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. He built an altar to the Lord and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. But the one line in that story that hits me so hard was David's words, I will not sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. Because Aruna offered to have everything laid out and ready to go. And it would have been so easy for David to step in with everything prepared and offer his sacrifice and walk away. But he knew, David knew that that would not be a meaningful act of worship. And so instead, he buys the land He buys the materials. He builds the altar with his own hands. And then he makes the sacrifice and God answers his prayer. And this speaks directly to us as we come into worship on a Sunday morning because it could be so easy to walk into church on Sunday morning and have everything laid out for us. To drop our kids off to be taken care of, to pick up our coffee and find a seat to sing, to hear a good message, and to be on our way. That was easy. Wasn't that a great morning? Too often, that's exactly the experience that we are looking for in a church. But if you find a church that's offering you that kind of experience, run away. Run from it. Because David was adamant, no, I want nothing to do with that kind of worship. Why? Because it costs nothing. And guess what? It's worth exactly what it costs. So what kind of worship experience should we we be looking for? We should be looking for a place where we can invest ourselves, where we can spend our time and energy, where we can give of ourselves, and where we can serve God by serving each other. Because all of those words, invest, spend, give, serve, those are the words that describe costly worship. Worship that declares God's value to us. So we ask, are those the words that describe your worship of God? And I want to end with Ephesians 4.11, and I call this the 411 
for life and ministry in the church. If you're over 40, you might know what I mean by that. Because before the internet, we knew two phone numbers. We knew that in an emergency, you could call 911, and you could call 411 for if you needed information. So today, when we might pick out our phone and ask Siri, back in the day, we had to make a call and talk to a real person. And so the phrase 411 means, what's the information that I need? Well, in Ephesians 4.1.1, Paul gives us the information we need to know for life and ministry in the church. He says, it was, some who gave, it was God who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Why? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. So the role of leaders like Pastor Nick and Ozon and Chris isn't to do the work of ministry. Their job is to raise up every man, every woman, every child in the church to do the work of ministry. And every one of us is to worship God by serving each other. And the result of a church living like this is that the body of Christ might be built up. And that is an essential part of our worshiping life together. It's every bit as important as singing songs. Because we do worship through bowing down, but if we're going to be biblical Christians, we also worship through serving. And so as I close, I'm not naive. I know that next week I'll be gone and life will go on. And everything that I said this morning will be a distant memory if it's a memory at all. But if there's anything that lasts, if there's anything that sticks with you, I hope that it's these two things. First of all, I hope that we can hold on to the understanding of what biblical worship means. That worship is declaring God's value through times of bowing down and through a lifestyle of service. So in the future, if someone asks you what worship is, I hope that you have an answer ready for them. But more than that, I hope that understanding shapes the way that you pursue worship in the church. Which leads me to the second thing that I hope that sticks with you. And that is the challenge that we heard from David. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Or for us, I will not worship God in a way that cost me nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, you have brought us into a relationship with you, that you have forgiven our sin and restored us to fellowship, that you have called us your daughters and sons, and that you have given us this immense privilege of being able to come before you in worship. And so I pray that as we go on with our lives from this day, that your Holy Spirit will continue to do in each one of us the words that you've spoken to us, that you glorify yourself in the way that you continue to work in our lives. We thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.